Hey, my dear patrons and listeners. I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast, and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah 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 blah, whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org slash contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org slash contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The response of Soviet citizens to Nazi invasion in June 1941 is a complex and contentious topic. With the benefit of hindsight, we know how hopelessly destructive Germany's war against the Soviet Union was. Yet many ordinary Russians witnessing the advancing German forces saw things differently. For many of them, having lived through collectivization and Stalinist terror in the 1930s, the invasion created hopes of a better life without the Bolsheviks. My guest, Johannes du Enstad, discusses the varied responses to Nazi rule from the mostly peasant population of Northwest Russia and offers a reconsideration of the relationship between the Soviet regime and its core Russian population at this crucial moment in history. Johannes du Enstad is a historian and postdoctoral fellow in Russian studies at the University of Oslo, where he studies right-wing militancy in post-Soviet Russia in the Center for Research on Extremism and teaches Russian history. He's the author of Soviet Russians Under Nazi Occupation, Fragile Loyalties in World War II, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Johannes du Enstad. So, um, I thought we'd start by just having you introduce yourself. So, my name is Johannes Enstad, and I'm um, born and raised in Oslo, Norway, where I still uh, live and work. Um, and I'm a, I'm a historian and Russianist by, by training. So I'm educated at the University of Oslo, where I got my bachelor's and master's degree in history. And then after a brief stint at the Norwegian embassy in Kiev in Ukraine, I enrolled in the PhD program in history, at, also at the University of Oslo. And what was your experience working in the embassy like? Well, I... Um, I helped the ambassador change uh, the water in his aquarium when his fish was about to die. <laughs> that was uh, that was one of the most interesting experiences, and uh, I guess the second most interesting. Well, the the most interesting experience was to take part in the in monitoring the elections, the presidential elections in early 2010, which was when um, Poroshenko, um, no, I'm sorry, uh, Yanukovych got uh, elected. And uh, and uh, yeah, so I was actually traveling around in the eastern parts of the country in uh, Donetsk land, and uh, in a city called Khorolivka, Hor- Hor- uh, where we uh, went around in the election 
uh, you know, the stations, schools, and and so forth, where people were uh, delivering their ballots, and uh, things were looking quite nice actually. And uh, the, those elections were were uh, sort of fairly well um, uh, well done and uh, sort of fair and free to a large extent. But uh, they did run into some troubles uh, some years later, as we know. No, so then after uh, after my brief uh, stint at the embassy. I went back and uh, and got a uh, got enrolled in the PhD program in history at the University of, of Oslo. So I was there then from 2010 to 2013, and in 2014 I defended my dissertation. Um, and then I was recruited into a project on uh, violent right-wing extremism in post-Soviet Russia. So that's what I've been working mostly on after 2014. Uh, first at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, which actually which has this uh, terrorism uh, research unit, and then back again to the University of Oslo as a postdoc from 2016. And this is where I am now, um, doing research on post-Soviet uh, militant right-wing extremism and uh, teaching Russian history post-Soviet politics and also history of Ukraine. So let's get let's get into to the, this book that you publish. Uh, the book is called The Soviet Russians Under Nazi Occupation: Fragile Loyalties in World War II. And this looks at the uh, a, a, you know one region uh, of the occupied territories during World War II, and that is Northwest Russia, uh, and the responses of inhabitants to both the invasion, the Nazi occupation, but also the Soviet system itself too. So, what what got you interested in this particular topic? I think to sort of um, trace the trajectory of that interest, I think we have to go way back before I was born, actually, to 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 the to the nineteen seventies when my father was um, spending um, time on the beaches of Corsica, uh, you know, this Mediterranean island and the birthplace of Napoleon, uh, together with um, um, his uh, new wife, my mother, on the honeymoon, uh, spending time there on the beaches reading a book called uh, Russia at War by Alexander Wirth. So it's a classic um, account of of wartime Russia and the Soviet Union by this British Russian-born journalist. And my father was reading the book. He probably should have been spending time with my mother, <laughs> but but he was uh, apparently completely lost in the pages of this book and became that was what that was what got him interested in in um, the history of the Second World War, the Eastern Front, and then from that um, interest in the Third Reich, Hitler's Germany. And, and and all that. So I suppose that I, at some point, inherited my my father's interest in history and in this particular part of history, and um, and also a sense of the the importance of of history, uh, which I guess these particular topics are apt to to give a sense of. Uh, so I ended up studying history myself at the university and. And there I sort of gravitated towards uh, these topics, Third Reich, the Holocaust, uh, anti-Semitism. And, um, and while studying these topics and others at university, I also figured that I should probably do well to learn a third language. First, I was actually going to study Chinese, because uh, just because it appeared so fascinating and exotic. But, but I went for Russian in the end. Um, Partly because, I mean, as a Norwegian, Russian is it's our neighboring country. There's always uh, a need for people who, who know Russian uh, to uh, to analyze stuff going on there, or to just teach someone the language, or to to write Russian history. Uh, so I ended up um, learning Russian, and from there, uh, I sort of naturally uh, gravitated towards uh, sort of Soviet uh, history. Um, and I ended up writing a master thesis about the uh, Soviet and post-Soviet historiography of the Leningrad siege, and um, looking at like the tensions between the narrative of the narrative of uh, heroism and triumph on the one hand, and uh, and uh, the realities of grim, you know, mass death on the other hand. And while researching that topic, the Leningrad siege. I came across uh, some Russian 
eyewitness testimony from not from within the beleaguered city but from from the occupied territories outside so testimonies of the german occupation basically and some of what i read there surprised me because people were talking about uh, how the germans allow the peasants to redistribute land during the occupation and how this could even lead to an improvement in people's food situation in the countryside compared to pre-war years and how some people were talking about how they feared the soviet partisans even more than the germans and sort of so uh, um and these testimonies sort of surprised me in their content and they got me curious as to what is it that's going on here and how can we find find out more about it so so uh so that's from that point i started to think about doing a phd project on uh on the topic of um soviet russians under german occupation and this is what yeah led me to where i am today i guess you know the, your book is is part of a, a growing and much needed historical account of of the war on the ground how people experienced it and and your book i think it, it you know from reading it it comes out of a, a certain uh, dissatisfaction that you you had with the way the war is presented as this kind of binaried, you know, Nazis versus Soviet heroic Soviet people who are patriotic and and looking at the 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 complications on the ground of how people survive but also how they relate to the various occupying powers. Um so talk a bit about, you know, this dissatisfaction if that's the correct word with the way the world the, the war is portrayed and and how you tried to intervene into that. Yeah, so I guess you're pointing at something important there. Uh, in terms of how this, um, you know, this struggle between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union is often portrayed in these black and white terms, um, and uh, but if you go in and and start reading the literature on the Great Patriotic War, as it's called in the Soviet Union, uh, I think you will soon you you will get the impression that um, as the Germans went east in 1941. Um, they uh, at first they were received as liberators in those parts of the Soviet Union that had recently been annexed, uh, such as Western Ukraine and uh, to a large extent in the Baltic countries. Um, but when and this is sort of reading the general literature on the um, on the Great Patriotic War, um, uh, and then the, the story goes that so the Germans encountered these positive responses um, in the western parts of the Soviet Union, but then when they moved uh, farther to the east and the farther they moved into Soviet Russian heartlands, uh, resistance would stiffen and the popular mood would sort of uh, turn into this uh, steadfast uh, pro-Soviet loyalism. So, sort of the farther you get towards Leningrad and Moscow, the more the, the mood would change. And and there's this one very uh, illustrative description from from one of the, from one of the historians who say that um, he wrote that uh, everyone everyone in these territories except a few renegades remained loyal to the Soviet motherland. So 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 this is a sort of the, um, this is w when I came across these sources and these testimonies of Russian peasants talking about um, how their lives changed for the better better uh, during German rule. I was sort of intrigued by this, and and uh, I felt that the the overarching uh, narrative um, needed to be well, adjusted somehow, or there was room there for some exploration. This goes to another thing when you mentioned that the the general the standard kind of story is you know the western borderlands of the Soviet Union the newly annexed parts the Baltics western Ukraine you get this sense of you know people being say they're being liberated by the Nazi invasion and and this goes to something that I I found really intriguing that's already in the title of your book and that is you specifically name Soviet Russians and that is, you know, you're 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 addressing Russians as a as a ethnic group within the northwestern part of uh, the Soviet Union of Soviet Russia. So, what is is there a specific ethnic angle for your book that you're specifically looking at 
Russian as as an ethnic group, and and if so, why? Sure, um, I think there is absolutely an an ethnic ang- an ethnic uh, angle to to the book, um, and um, as you say, Soviet Russians is a, is in the title, and this is this is a book about specifically Russian territory, um, as a as opposed to uh, some other uh, Soviet territory. Um, or Soviet territory in general, because most of what has been written on uh, sort of the Soviet the Soviet experience of German occupation uh, has tended to look at um, parts of the country that were uh, farther to the west, so the Ukraine, uh, Western Ukraine, and also the Baltic countries. But um, I sort of felt a lack of a book which uh, systematically tried to explore the, um, specific, the specifically Russian experience of, uh, of German occupation. So, so that's why I chose this territory, Northwest Russia, which, which, um, uh, which you know, in, uh, in 1941, this territory is inhabited by about 2 million people. And... Uh, the percentage of ethnic Russians is about 95%. So this is a, this is a sort of untypically for the Soviet Union as a whole, right? Which is sort of a multi multi ethnic empire, and a lot more ethnically homogeneous uh, compared to the the regions further to the south uh, and, and and west, right? So um, so uh, so yeah. So there's definitely an, an ethnic angle in that sense. But but I mean. Um, uh, Northwest Russia was also uh, territory inhabited by small percentage of Jews, uh, Jewish people living mostly in the suburbs south of Leningrad, uh, as well as in the southernmost towns. Uh, and if you go down south in this territory, you will reach um, sort of the border between uh, the border to Belarus, Belarus, right? So and and the, and the pale of settlement, this historic um, area of, of Jewish Jewish settlement. So, so in the towns to the south, you will have maybe twenty percent uh, Jews in, in towns like Neville in the south, and also a small percentage of Roma people, and uh, maybe seventy or eighty thousand people belonging to um, Finnish-speaking groups, uh, Finns, uh, Estonians, and also these indigenous. Um, Almost extinct peoples, you know, votes and Isaurians, and and a smaller number of ethnic Germans. And I also devote part of the book to, to try to explain how these non-Slavic minorities were, um, apart from the Jews, of course, the, these other non-Slavic minorities, the Finnish-speaking ones, and of course the German-speaking ones, were were treated favorably by the Germans in terms of economic policy and food policy. So, so yeah, there's definitely an, an ethnic angle, but uh, I would also add that there's maybe even more so a social class angle to my study because it deals mostly with peasants. And the great majority of this territory, probably 95% are, are, are peasants or rural, rural inhabitants. And um, so um, Soviet Russian society as a whole I mean, it was predominantly a peasant society in 1941. You don't get um, you, um, the sort of rate of urbanization. I don't think it exceeds 50% until maybe later in the 1950s. So, uh, so, so the thing is, if the Soviet Union was predominantly peasant in 1941, then to me, it becomes quite important to understand the particularly peasant experience of the German invasion. Um, and, st- and, and that make and for that reason, it made sense to me to look at this uh, this predominantly peasant northwest northwest Russian territory. I think you're, you're you're absolutely right to emphasize the the social class aspect um, for all the reasons you said in terms of the you know the the main experience uh, you know is a peasant experience because of the numbers of the population. So given that, then um, paint a picture of what life was like for for Soviet or Russian peasants in Northwest Russia before the war? I think life for peasants in Northwest Russia, as in most of the Soviet Union, uh, was um, quite hard and uh, quite uh, impoverished in the 1930s because of uh, Stalin's policies of collectivization. Uh, So I think peasant life 
you know, you should, you should, we should think about peasant life as defined by uh, collectivization in the 1930s, uh, in the sense that um, most peasants throughout this uh, decade were were forced or left with no other options other than to, to join these collective farms, um, and um, and along with the policy of collectivization, um, you had this policy of dekulakization, which meant removing the so-called kulaks from the countryside, and in um, Soviet Stalinist parlance, a kulak was basically anyone um, somewhat more affluent than the other peasants, or just anyone opposing, or actively opposing at least, uh, the policy of collectivization. So kulaks were uh, were branded as such and uh, and and then sent off to the gulag or resettled within sort of given uh, poor quality soil in the margins of their own districts and sort of sent off marginalized in general. So in Northwest Russia, you had about 10,000 families of peasants who, who were subjected to dekulakization. Um, and this policy uh, in the countryside, um, um, besides collectivization and dekulakization, you also have this uh, sort of attack on traditional village culture, which includes, um, uh, of course, the attack against the church, uh, shutting down hundreds of churches and sending priests off to the gulag and um, generally sort of marginalizing uh, the traditional village elites. Um, and so what's interesting for me is that I have this nice sample of about 60 interviews uh, conducted in the mid-2000s by this Russian historian um, who went into the uh, to the Luga district, which is south of uh, St. Petersburg, uh, and talked to old peasants who had been born in the 1920s, who had lived through the occupation. And, uh, and these stories were recorded and largely uh, published uh, and there is also some unpublished materials that I was able to get hold of. And, and the point is that if you look at these um, interviews and the stories of these of these people, they quite uniformly talk about collectivization as a humiliating, uh, degrading um, experience and and of a lowering of living standards. So there's this one uh, this one um, quote that I keep coming back to from one of the uh, one of these old peasants who, who uh, was asked to uh, to describe the uh, experience of collectivization for his family and, and he responded that this is a quote my ancestors were affluent peasants but the Soviet regime turned them into beggars and slaves so, uh, so an, an affluent yeah well they um, he was talking specifically about them the, the the nap period in the 1920s by which um, there was a certain um, uh, by which uh, you know uh, Lenin's policy of uh, returning uh, market relations to some extent into the Soviet economy and making it possible for for a number of peasants to um, to uh, to live a life somewhat more comfortable by uh, marketing their produce uh, more freely. Um, so this was in a whole uh, collectivization in a whole as a whole was experienced as a as a second serfdom for many people and um and um and another sort of um dimension of of the peasant experience in the 1930s that i would like to bring up is this um this uh, this um recurring rumors that were circulating in the Soviet and Russian countryside in the 1930s um, saying that a, a war is coming um, a war is coming it's coming soon and in this war the Bolsheviks will be defeated and the collective farms will be abolished uh, and the Germans will come or the Poles will come or some foreign power will come and 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 defeat the regime and and um, and put an end to the collective farms and this so th these rumors that are coming back again and again uh, throughout the 1930s uh, sort of describe I think quite well this 
the, the whole experience of collectivization and the, um, the consequences for um, for peasant daily life. And let me ask you about these rumors, because, you know, as as you know, in, during collectivization, it, there's also all sorts of rumors. Um, and, you know, Lynn Viola famously looked at these rumors in terms of religious overtones, the coming of an apocalypse, you know, the second coming, some sort of end times rhetoric. Is is Does, does that end times rhetoric or some kind of, of you know, cataclysmic, apocalyptic um, overtones also color these rumors of the coming war? Like it's it's almost like a, a, a it's also inflected in, in religious overtones. Oh yeah, uh, I think absolutely. I think Lynn Viola and, and uh, others who have written about this were were definitely onto something when when um, uh, framing it in, uh, framing it in terms of this religious apoc- uh, apocalyptic visions, um, and um, you can see it. I mean in the in the wordings of um, of uh, of how peasants are talking about this coming war, and and you have yeah, you have um, examples of uh, peasants in north north uh, northwest Russia talking about how uh, there will be a war, and Hitler will come, and he will, um, and we will have salvation. So there's a, so there's this religious language, um, uh, which obviously. Uh, um, is uh, yeah, it's f- fundamental to to understanding these phenomena. Uh, so, given given this, given the experience of the 1930s, the 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 collectivization at really as a cataclysm, um, how did people respond when the Nazis invaded? What are the the various responses that you found? If you look at some of the uh, the ways in which uh, the Soviet Russian response was uh, described in uh, some of the Previous literature on the on the on the Great Patriotic War, um, you have um, examples of, um, uh, or you have these interpretations in which most of the Soviet Russian population, or like ninety percent, are basically um, uh, remaining uh, steadfastly loyal to the to the Soviet motherland and either putting up resistance or at least passively. Um, and, uh, not conforming to you know German demands and so forth. Um, so what I found when delving into these materials was that um, the peasants uh, see the Germans coming in, and the Germans carry this message of liberation. So this is part of the German propaganda, right? And they say we're coming to liberate you from the Stalinist yoke. And for the peasants, this rings. Maybe it doesn't ring true, but it rings hopefully, right? So uh, it makes a lot of people invest a lot of hopes in this message of liberation. And you can uh, you can read this from quite numerous uh, German military reports, where you have you know reports from the German military intelligence officers who are um, you know tasked with trying to. Um, uh, a certain the public mood uh, in the recently occupied territories, and uh, from those reports, I mean, independently of each other in different places in this territory, uh, you get a you get a picture of um, a peasant mass, which is not exactly, you know, uh, jubilantly, um, uh, cheeringly welcoming the Germans, but who are sort of uh, you know um, apprehensively, but still. You know, hopefully, um, they're hoping for the for the Germans to come in and institute some sort of better life for them. Uh, if not today, then you know tomorrow or in three years or five years. And uh, so, th- so this is a big part of the of the response. Um, uh, and so you don't have these crowds of cheering people as you do in Ukraine. I think we have lots of um, you have lots of. Uh, documentation for these um, really enthusiastic uh, welcomings um, in in parts of Western Ukraine and so forth. But you do have scenes of peasants coming out with the bread and salt, this traditional greeting, uh, traditional Russian greeting, and you do have um, uh, eyewitness and even diary testimony to to back this up, uh, contemporary diary testimony. so there's certainly not any sort of overarching steadfast pro-Soviet loyalism. Um, people are apprehensive, but but uh, but often willing to to invest some sort of hopes in the in these German promises of a better of a better life. And then of course you have, and then of course you have 
um, the partisan movement, which is quite, it's there from the start, but it's, but from the beginning, it's really a narrow party effort. Uh, so it's a communist party-led um, sort of movement, which um, which is quite narrow in its um, uh, recruitment, uh, mostly people who are members of the Communist Party or members of the uh, political um, police, the NKVD, who are uh, part of these first partisan groups. And it's not really until 1943 that the partisan movement becomes truly popular, that sort of ordinary people starts uh, ordinary people start to to join it on a massive scale. So in terms of um, popular reactions to the Nazi invasion, I would say that Russians uh, in this territory generally is not that they weren't patriotic. So they remained Russian patriots, I would say. But their patriotism wasn't politically bound up with the Soviet regime. So the way I see it is that these people wanted the best for their country, for their home and hearth, you know, and for their homeland, motherland, fatherland, and so forth. But And so they weren't really sure whether um, the Germans were able to, to give this to them. Actually important, I should say, to point out that from the Soviet side, they'd been getting police reports for years in the mid to late 1930s about this possibility of the public reaction to a war. Um, you know, some some historians have have even gone have even argued that one of the the kind of drivers of the terror in 37 and 38 is this fear that um, the population was not going to fight for the for the Soviet government. Um, so it's interesting to see both from the side of the invader, but also from what we know in terms of what local police reports were sending the, sending the center about the mood of the masses, broadly speaking, um, there is a certain convergence of this dissatisfaction or unwill or acquiescence or at least willing to, you know, not willing to die for the Soviet system. So the Soviet, so the 1937-38 terror was supposed to to put this mood in order, <laughs> right? It was supposed to, <laughs> yeah. Um, but of, of course, we we, we sure how see well that how went. that turned out. <laughs> yeah, it's not the it's not the it wasn't the most effective method. Um, now, of course, you know when the Nazis roll in, they have a they have a policy of 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 cleansing and annihilation and violence, and then that's particular to the extermination of uh, the Jewish populations that you mentioned, the Roma, and of course other un, so called undesirables within the body politic. So, it, talk about the way the Holocaust uh, was carried out uh, in the northwestern part of 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 Soviet Russia. So, as I mentioned. Um, one of my f sort of um, first driving interests, or one of the topics that drove my interest in history initially, was um, was the Third Reich and the Holocaust and the history of antisemitism. So, um, so when I delved into this material for my for my doctoral research, um, this was also a, a way for me to to sort of explore how these processes um, played out on the ground in in the context of this uh, particular region in the northwest of Russia. And, um, and looking at it, well, it's clear that the Germans uh, hunted down the Jewish population here with as you know, much enthusiasm, if you can use that word, as they did in other parts of the occupied Soviet uh, Union. Um, there weren't that many Jews to kill. Um, uh, probably fewer than 10,000 um, uh, by the time of the invasion, and a lot of them managed to to um, to escape, to flee eastwards before the advancing Germans. Many of them didn't, um, well, because they didn't have a time they were maybe surprised by the you know the quick advance of the german forces and suddenly just found themselves under german occupation or uh, others didn't really believe all these rumors about german killings of jews and some of them would remember um you know the germans from the first world war 
and the um, you know occupation uh, regime set up by by the by the Germans uh, during the First World War in, in parts of the former Russian Empire um, in Ukraine, but also further to the north um, in the Baltic area. And I mean that occupation regime was comparatively mild. Um, so I mean, remembering that, some of the Jews would would feel that these are you know the same Germans coming back. Could it really be that bad? And all this propaganda must be you know must be exaggeration. Um, so that's another reason for 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 Jews staying put. Those who stayed put were were of course. Uh, we're hunted down and killed, basically. So you have this survival rate, I think, of a few percent. Uh, so those who were remaining in the occupied territory, where almost everyone uh, were murdered, and uh, and what struck me when when looking into the materials and the the eyewitness reports, um, memoirs, and testimonies submitted to the to the Soviet sort of um, investigation commission. Uh, that uh, after the war was set up, set up to um, to document the German crimes, is the way that the Jewish population is sort of um, systematically subjected to uh, humiliation in all sorts of ways, in all these little towns across this whole region. You know, the small small towns of a few thousand people, and maybe you have 30 Jewish people living there, and you have scenes in which the the Jews are forced to carry around maybe a Russian auxiliary policemen who are in the service of the Germans to carry them around on a cart or something around the town and the and the uh, and the Russians are sort of sitting on this cart and beating the Jews with a whip and scenes like this sort of um, repeating themselves over and over in you know these small little towns, and it's sort of so. Yeah, it's um, it was it's um, um, you uh, you're left with this impression of this uh, incredibly unbelievably <laughs> evil regime that the Germans set up, and you and you you know about this from the general literature, and sort of everyone knows that the Germans were evil. But when you sort of get down to the details and read the actual testimonies of people who were there. It gets you in, in in a way that it maybe doesn't when you when you, when you read about it generally. And and also too, you know the 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 fact that the and the literature in general speaks to this too that the the way the Holocaust is carried out in the East, it's it's it requires the participation of locals and uh, and collaboration in this. So what? How did the you know? Granted, Jewish population was very small, but nonetheless. What role did you know locals play in in the Nazi efforts to to exterminate Jews? I mean, you just mentioned these kind of humiliating scenes that speaks to some kind of participation. So the Germans are the initiators and the and the rulers, and uh, they are the ultimately responsible ones, right? But but in these little localities, you of, the Germans are often um, more or less. Um, um, they have to rely on help from some local people to identify the Jews or set up lists over over Jewish people in some locality or just um, help the Germans find out where the Jews live and so forth. So you have collaboration on that level and you also have uh, participation um, in terms of rounding up rounding up people and transporting them uh, from from A to B or from wherever they're arrested to the to the to the place of uh, execution and um, I don't have any documents to actually uh, specifically verify this but I'm I would be surprised if there weren't collaboration in the level of actually executing people as well so so you have that so apart from Jews I mean you have a small population of Roma which the Germans uh, begin to to murder indiscriminately in early 1942, and uh, um, about a thousand uh, Roma are killed in this territory during the war. Um, and then, what's somewhat less well known, I think, um, uh, is the the attack on 
patients, mental, mentally and physically disabled people that the Germans are encountering, you know, across these districts in mental hospitals and and other institutions. And uh, so the whole German project of of um, of taking away sort of um, lives unworthy of being lived, as they called it, Lebensunwertiges uh, Leben. Uh, in, in Germany proper is quite well known, right? The T4 project, so-called Euthanasia project. But uh, but they carried out, they carried this forward uh, in the in the occupied Soviet territories, and in north in northwest Russia you have all of these um, uh, lots of documentation that pops up from um, from the from the German files and also from the from the Soviet. Um, post-war investigation files uh, that document numerous accounts, uh, numerous, uh, not numerous accounts, but numerous um, inc- incidents of, you know, mental hospitals being, uh, um, well, subjected to starvation, basically. So they just simply keep food out, and after a few weeks or months, the patients begin dying, and either they starve to death, or the Germans send in doctors to to the Germans send in doctors. I wouldn't call them doctors really, but they send them some sort of medical personnel, and they gather these patients in a room and they inject them with a lethal poison, and they die. And all in all, I was able to document a killing about the killing of about two thousand seven hundred mentally or physically disabled people in northwest Russia, uh, which I was somewhat surprised to, to see because I this sort of just came out from the from the evidence without um, I wasn't really prepared to see that. And that was also one of the things that really got to me while while doing this research. Now given given this all the you know it's a it's an incredibly violent situation. Uh, and and you have this varied responses of of locals to the the Nazi occupation. Um, what what was daily life like for for people? How, what was what were the ways people just survived? Which I think was probably the driver for for most people's actions is just how do you survive this? Yeah, I mean, of course, for the for the for the Jews and the Roma and the mentally ill, and of course the prisoners of war, which we didn't mention, but that's another group uh, who are sort of subject to to large scale annihilation. And you have, um, I think, of about uh, hundred thousand or uh, ninety thousand prisoners of war who are you know who are kept in in POW camps across the territory in December 1941. Uh, after a few months, by April. Uh, half of them are dead. So that's the single largest uh, group. Um, that's the group in which the single largest number of people uh, are being uh, left to die or just killed um, during the war, right? So for for the for the POWs and the Jews and Roma, this daily life isn't it's not daily life really. It's just a, a life and death struggle all along, right? Um, it's a struggle for survival. And, but apart from these groups that were that were singled out, uh, we could make uh, we can make two main distinctions. Uh, so first, between people living close to the front lines or far away from the front lines, uh, and you can distinguish between urban and rural inhabitants. So to take the second first, uh, urbanites are generally worse off than rural inhabitants. So there's general you know, scarcity, wartime scarcity in, in the towns and and the workers and people living in cities and towns, they rely on uh, German administered rations, which are generally extremely meager. And they are basically forced to sell off their possessions, you know, things they own, clothes in exchange for food. Um, and you get an a big increase in in black market activity, so the Germans try to control the markets and try to sort of keep prices in check somehow, but they're not really able to do that. So so black market activity is popping up everywhere, and um, and uh, and this is to the detriment of of urban population, and it's to the uh, to the contrary, peasants are often um, Making small fortunes from 
um, from selling agricultural produce to to this impoverished peoples uh, in the cities. Um, and you also have a somewhat better situation for for uh, sort of traders, merchants, and uh, artisans such as like tailors and shoemakers, because so the Germans are basically encouraging or uh, allowing private business to to uh, to bloom uh, during these years. It's uh, apart from uh, from before the war, right? And um, and um, so you have a number of like restaurant shop owners, people setting up tea houses to cater for German soldiers, um, who are who are making a better living than than other people under under the conditions of war and occupation. So there's an urban rural divide, and there's um, all these private enterprisers who are who are doing reasonably well, and then you have this distinction between people living uh, close to the front lines and people living further further um, deeper into the um, so yeah further away from the front lines so close to the front lines there's really starvation um, and this is where all the german soldiers hundreds of thousands of soldiers and not least horses uh, are concentrated um, and um, and uh, so you get starvation conditions here uh, beginning in September, October 1941, and in the course of the winter, 41-42, you have um, famine in which 20 to 30,000 people probably perish. Um, those who don't perish, they flee to the interior, so they flee west from the front lines, from the famine-stricken areas and into the, uh, into the rare areas. Either they flee on their own or they are organized in like evacuation trains organized by the germans because the germans they have this rhetoric of we can let the slavic people die off because we don't need them anyway but when it comes down to it if you look at the you know documentation for how german officers on the ground actually operate you see that they they don't really want mass starvation um <laughs> not for humanitarian reasons but because they don't want uh, soldiers to see it and be demoralized, they don't want uh, diseases to spread and so forth. So they they organize this uh, evacuation of people away from the from the famine areas into the rear. I would imagine also they need the labor, right? Oh, they need the labor. Sure, yeah. The the Germans are increasingly increasingly in need of of labor to sort of. Um, um, keep uh, basic infrastructure going, uh, rebuild uh, roads and sort of uh, clean snow off roads or railroad tracks and so forth and so forth. So yeah, so they need their labor too. So, um, um, and farther behind the front lines, there seems to be a substantial proportion of the population actually who who appear to be living more or less, more or less comfortably in terms of, at least in terms of food supply. So this is why I titled one of my chapters "More Meat, More Milk, and More Bread Than in a Stalinist Kolkhoz," which is which is actually actually a quotation from one of, from one of the peasant witnesses who um, who uh, is being interviewed uh, in the 2000s, so many decades later. But but he's talking about the experience of occupation and talking about how they were much more well fed during these years than. Um, before the war. So this is an interesting piece of the puzzle. So what's going on here um, with all in sort of the, the countryside farther behind the front um, where peasants are reported to be living reasonably well in terms of food at, at least. So this was this was partly due to decollectivization because the Germans allowed the peasants to, to up to um, um, basically, abolish the kolkhozes and uh, and redistribute the land and redistribute farm equipment and animals and so forth, and allow them to to till their own land more or less um, uh, in more or less a semi-private fashion. Um, and the peasants generally welcomed uh, decollectivization. Well, what happened was that when the Germans went in, they basically spontaneously um, decollectivized, and then in the spring of the next year, the Germans sort of um, 
um, they sort of rubber stamped this. Um, uh, they institutionalized the new arrangements by uh, setting up this so-called new agrarian order, um, uh, and they had a huge propaganda campaign surrounding this, involving priests and all sorts of uh, other actors and. And the evidence suggests that the peasants really welcomed uh, decollectivization, and a lot of them um, felt that they could uh, live better uh, under under these circumstances, and sort of, you know they could um, they could dispose of a larger proportion of the surplus than they could before. Uh, sure, the Germans demanded a certain quota, right? They wanted so and so much grain and so and so milk and this much meat and so forth. But uh, this quota seemed to be not nearly as burdensome as as the pre-war quotas. And another uh, reason that the peasants were living better in many places was not just uh, the new sort of um, uh, conditions under decollectivization, but also that the Germans were less able than the Soviets were to effectively control the countryside. So they couldn't really keep track of what all these peasants were doing. You know, they were they were hiding away, hiding away lots of grains, I know, behind the barn or whatever, maybe, you know, uh, uh, down into the earth or something. Or uh, they were concealing fields that they had cultivated, so and playing all sorts of tricks and sort of. Um, and this allowed them to, to keep more of their produce than they otherwise would. I'm Gabe Kramer from Pittsburgh, and you're listening to the SRB podcast. I listen and contribute on Patreon to SRB because I value the rich dialogue between scholars and intellectuals on Soviet history and the post-Soviet world. You know, as we know, the Nazis are, are eventually defeated. The this Red Army and with partisans push the Germans out. Um, so. Given the fact that you have this, you know, spontaneous decollectivization, you have a different uh, agrarian order during these these war years. How did the Soviet government reestablish power in these territories? I haven't really been studying the actual processes of um, of reestablishing power. I'm more, uh, I've more been trying to look at some of the popular responses to just the return of the Red Army and, and the return of the Soviet regime. So sort of the process of re-establishing power is probably something which goes on for several years and which is uh, something that sort of needs to be studied separately. I think there are some historians looking at this particular question now. I think uh, Michael David Fox might be uh, working on Smolensk and, and the... Yeah, and this this specific question. So, but um, but obviously, when the Red Army returns, there is much relief and joy, because I mean, despite uh, collect- uh, decollectivization and so these these pockets of sort of better life in parts of the countryside, uh, you still have huge burdens, huge burdens on, on the population in terms of the starvation that I already mentioned, and in terms of also, you know, these forced labor deportations. So the Germans begin shipping people off to Germany for forced labor in the in the German war industry in 1942, and tens of thousands of people are being forcibly deported to Germany, and, um, uh, and you have this fierce uh, counter-insurgency warfare from the German side. So when the partisan movement is building up in 1943, and especially in the late 1943, the the Germans are um, striking back with really ferocious measures, burning down whole villages and massacring whole populations. Uh, so, 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 so the situation in the occupied territories gets worse and worse. So when the Red Army returns, I mean, of course, a lot of people are relieved and joyful and and react by sort of you know, our own people are back again and the war is over and so forth. <clears throat> but there's also uh, there's also a large amount of fear as to how the Bolsheviks will have their revenge on everyone who who have um, who are seen to have been collaborating with the Germans at some level. And um, and uh, of course there were <coughs> there were. Uh, Lots of reprisals in this sense, and you have examples of 
people who have worked for the Germans sort of delivering milk from the dairy to the to the German um, uh, distribution office uh, being shot for this um, and so forth. But uh, um, um, but but in terms of the mass uh, repressions against collaborators, this is really not something that I've been uh, looked at particularly. But I mean, <clears throat> if you look at the the immediate post-war period and the way that people um, are reacting to the re-establishment of the Soviet order, I guess the most general observation regards the collective farms, because of course none of the peasants were really happy to be forced back into the kolkhoz, but but they were forced back, right? So uh, so they were, and they were not happy with this, and there was also this terrible post-war famine of 1946-47, which which also made its mark in in northwest Russia and. Uh, um and yeah let many people to to starve and um and uh, so, so so for many of the interviewees that um um whose stories have been published uh, you see this uh story about the post war years as um described as like a new plunge into poverty and destitution and for some it's like it even seems as if the occupation years uh, are, are left as this breathing space in between pre and post-war uh, Stalinism and collective farm life um, for, for some so so you see after the war that this this story of a better life under the Germans is a story which sort of lives on uh, in people's minds and conversations, and the and the Soviet police uh, the, um, and, and authorities are actually worried in the 46, 47 uh, about the spread of these anti-Soviet conversations about how life was better under the Germans. And so these these stories is, they kind of live on, but of course of course they live on side by side with with, with the other story, which is also. No, um, a true one of uh, of German oppression and violence and so forth. And finally, I want to go back to this this you know issue of of what kind of brought you into this study, this dissatisfaction with the way the war is portrayed, or how how we think about it, just kind of generally. Um, and 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 your book, of course, as I as I said before, is part of a growing number of studies that are looking at the various you know complicated relationships on the ground beyond you know the soviet the red army and the nazi army the nazi military so after writing this book how how do you understand world war 2 differently because one of the things that i was uh, thinking about while while reading the book is it reminded me of the civil war in many respects where you know the a lot of populate a lot of the population was just kind of the, their loyalties were were based on which way the wind was blowing right they they saw themselves as caught in between these two, you know, different pow- different powers at work. Absolutely. So I, I guess writing the book made me begin to think about the relationships, but um, the relationship between the big stories and the small stories. So, so with all, I think, with all great wars and conflicts and these sort of massive events, huge conflagrations, you know, with millions of people involved, you of course you get these big myths. Um, produced and by by myths I don't mean untrue stories I just mean these overarching narratives that structure uh, our way of thinking about them so like so big stories with clear contours villains on the one side and heroes on the other and these stories I mean they make sense um, uh, on their level and they can you know contain huge amounts of truth but when you get down into this everyday life history approach and look at individual experiences as i've done in northwest russia and try to sort of look at all these crazy things going on on the ground then you discover this huge sort of choir of dissonant voices and some of these voices chime they chime pretty well with the big myths but uh, a lot of others are really out of tune with with the big myths right so 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 to me uh, we need this this choir of dissonant voices. Um, I don't think it's any good to to just get bogged down in um, in all sorts of individual histories. I mean that won't get us very far. But I think it's um, a good idea to try to study 
all these small stories and try to order them somehow and make sense of them because by doing that I think we can see some new important new features of the larger story that would otherwise uh, not be so visible to us. In terms of, of how you see the war differently, so how would you see the narrative that you, you've you told fit into the other narratives of how we understand the conflict? I think all these uh, dissonant uh, voices from below, from Northwest Russian, from the ground of Northwest Russia, where there's a lot of dissonant voices there who... Um, who are saying that um, life under the Soviets, under Stalinism, was so bad that it made us long for something different. And when a foreign power came to invade our country, um, it made us um, invest hopes and even efforts in uh, the promises of a better life, which this foreign power brought along. So... Um, in that sense, um, we need to think about what exactly patriotic means when we're thinking about the Great Patriotic War. Because in the, in the big narrative, the Great Patriotic War is about the patriotic Soviets striking back at the Nazi Germans, which is true. I mean, the, <laughs> and I'm very happy that the patriotic Soviets struck back at the Nazis and chased them all the way back, all the way back to Berlin and um, you know uh, carried the burden of the European struggle against Nazism. So my take is not to diminish um, the importance of Soviet patriotic heroic uh, victorious struggle against Nazi Germany. But it is to to also dig a little, to pack, unpack this concept of patriotism and, and, and see how, on the ground level, this meant uh, a lot of different things to a lot of people, especially if you look at the peasants. That was Johannes Du Enstad, a historian and postdoctoral fellow in Russian studies at the University of Oslo, where he studies right-wing militancy in post-Soviet Russia in the Center for Research on Extremism and teaches Russian history. He's the author of Soviet Russians Under Nazi Occupation, Fragile Loyalties in World War II, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.